Hello and welcome to Paul's Podcast Diary, episode number 168, part two, for Monday the 2nd of September 2019. This is the rescheduled content, which was originally going to run with Saturday's regular diary update, but as the two segments together would have been so long, I've decided to run them separately so that you can access all of this information much more easily. Don't forget, I'll have a regular diary update for you on Saturday the 7th of September. Then on Monday the 9th, a week from now, I'll be giving you a full up-to-date review of my rapid release plans, as well as exclusive access to my detailed planning document. In this section of today's show, I'm just going to outline some of the tools and tech that I use in my indie author business. And I've been working on the internet since 2001. So I used to work, I trained with the BBC. And then about 2008, 2009, I started trying to figure out ways that I could make money online. So I've been working online commercially for 10 years, I guess. And I've been building websites for how many years is that now? Blimey, 18 years. So I've been at this quite a long time, wouldn't class myself as an expert, but hopefully I can at least give you my opinion on some of these things and share some of my thoughts and you might pick up some tools and some tricks here that help you in your own indie author business. Now, when I use tools, when I find a new tool, I'm generally looking for something that has an app, particularly if it's a software service. The reason for that is that ever since I've been working online, my aspiration has always been, since the kids were younger, that when the kids were grown up and they'd left home, that I would travel, I would be uh, nomadic. And by nomadic, I don't mean staying somewhere overnight, then moving on. I meant we would be staying places at three to six months at a time. We would set up a, a kind of home and then and then move on. Um, but I didn't want to, I wanted it all to be in the cloud or all in apps. I didn't want to be dragging loads of stuff around with me. Effectively, I need to run my business from a laptop. So before I get embroiled in anything, that's always one of my tests. Does it have an app? Can I access it on my phone? Can I get it on a simple laptop? And if the answer is no, then it puts me right off. Now, there is one exception to this, and that is Scrivener. I write in Scrivener, but Scrivener does not have an app. Uh, it doesn't have a cool kind of online version. It's an installed software. But I generally have not found yet a writing tool in the cloud that I like. So Story Shop is one, um, and I don't like Story Shop. I don't get on with it at all. I love the Novel Factory, the software called Novel Factory, as regular listeners to the podcast will know. But I tend to use it for planning, and I prefer, dare I say it, particularly as a geek, I actually like the downloadable version better than the cloud version. So if I did go traveling and I needed to work in the cloud, I would go back to Google Docs without a hesitation. I, I really actually, I like Google Docs a lot. I would not use Word. I hate it. It's, it's bloated and horrible. Whereas Google Docs is everything that Word should be and that it's lean, it's clean, it's easy to use, it saves regularly, never lose work. You can go back to versions, just very, very easy to use. And actually with Google Docs, you can even dictate directly into it. It's pretty darn good for dictation as well. So Scrivener is the only exception in what I'm about to tell you today. Everything else is in the cloud or has an app. It's all super cool. But Scrivener doesn't offer a version of that yet. If I went traveling, I'd use Google Docs. I use Google Docs every day, loads of stuff. The script I'm reading 
to you now or the outline script I've got. This is written in Google Docs. I've got years worth of material in Google Docs. And in fact, I have to pay Google because I have so much stuff on Google Drive. I've used Google Drive since, well, at least 10 years. When I used to run a project for the BBC, it was a remote project and we I had staff that weren't in the office most of the week and we had to find a way of managing rotors. And we started on Excel spreadsheets and it got ridiculous as we passed around Excel spreadsheets, um, saving as version one, two, three. We just got completely mixed up. And Google, I mean, we wouldn't think about it. Google Drive's been around for ages. We used it in those days and I put all the rotors on there and I fell in love with it. The minute I realized that three, four, five people could be on the same document simultaneously I went for it big time and all my rotors used to be on Google Docs so I fell in love with Google Docs years and years and years ago virtually the minute it was released I think but it does some wonderful wonderful things so big fan of Google Docs if you haven't checked it out and it's free of course it does spreadsheets it does powerpoints uh, what else? There's something else. Oh, something else I really like on Google Docs is it does surveys and forms as well for free. And that's something that many people don't know. So um, with that exception, then let's launch into my tech toolkit for indie authors. First of all, you're going to need a website. And I'm going to stick my neck out here and say to you that you can have a Wix site or a Weebly site or a Squarespace site. You can do that, but I don't recommend that. And the reason I don't recommend it, this, so I don't want to get all snobby about this, but I, I guess the first thing I'd say to you is I'd rather you just had a website. I would like you to have a website. So given that, if the only way you can get a website is to use Wix, Weebly, Squarespace, one of these builders, well, then do it because you will have a website up in a day and it'll be very simple. So I would rather you had a website. But if you're building a long-term author business, so this isn't for a year, this is for five to 10 to 15 years, this is a long-term business, I would suggest that you invest in a WordPress site because WordPress is a content management system. Your content, I'm still using the same WordPress site that I was using in 2008, 2009, when I created my first ever blog post. So it's moved with me. And when I created that blog post, uh, I think Facebook was, well, I think Facebook was on the scene, but social media was nowhere near as big as it is now. And I think I was probably still using a Nokia phone. I'm sure it wasn't a smartphone back then. So all these things that we need now, like social media buttons and connectivity and the sort of mobile friendly sites that we need, none of those things were around then, but WordPress has adapted. I've used the same core site, the same content, and I've snapped on a theme and I've snapped on plugins that have allowed that basic site to grow and evolve with the times. The other thing about WordPress is that you own the site, you own the content with Wix or Weebly or Squarespace. You're going to find it very difficult. If you use it, say, for five years and you've got 100 blog posts on there, you're going to find it very difficult if you want to migrate from that. So if it's short term, you just need a quick fix, then that's fine. Use Wix, Weebly and Squarespace. If it means if it's the difference between you not having a website and having a website, then fine, use those. But in actual fact, what I would suggest you did over that is you used MailerLite. Um, most most uh, web uh, mailing softwares these days, uh, but I'm going to mention MailerLite because I actually use this and it's brilliant. They will give you a landing page builder. And, and frankly, you might as well just get a very simple landing page that's got a picture of your book or your books on it. Use MailerLite to, to generate that because it's part of what you pay for. Or you might not even have to pay for MailerLite, but it's part of your service on MailerLite. And it will just build you a single page that will allow you to start building your email list 
and you'll be able to put pictures on there and make it look really nice. Now, I will give some examples of that on the resources for this week. And by the way, all of the things that I mentioned during this podcast episode, I will put links to all these software services on the resources page for this episode, which is Paul's Podcast Diary 168. By the way, a lot of the links that I do share this week will be affiliate links. And if you're not familiar with an affiliate link, an affiliate link means that if you buy through my links, and I only obviously affiliate with services that I use and can recommend uh, with great um, deal of sort of comfort and confidence. What happens with those is you you don't pay any more money, but it sends me a kickback and it allows me obviously to fund and pay for, for this podcast. So you don't pay any extra for that. But I, I just point out that I do get a kickback on some of those. But I always mark the ones where I get a referral fee. But as I say, just to reiterate, you don't pay more for the service if you buy through my referrals fee. But what I will do on that page when I'm talking about websites is I will put two links to my sci-fi and my thriller landing pages. And what I would say to you is so long as you've got a page at least like that, then you've got a web presence. Again, Wix, Weebly, Squarespace, a website builder if you absolutely have to. But long term, if you're serious about building a long term business, this is what I use myself. I've used WordPress for years and I use SiteGround hosting for my website hosting. SiteGround hosting. So SiteGround, as far as I'm concerned, is the best WordPress hosting. It's the it's reasonably priced. It's very cheap for the first year, that's for sure. It does go up a little bit in subsequent years. I think I pay £90 a quarter and I've got 10 websites for that. So £90 a quarter, 10 websites I can squeeze onto my, my SiteGround hosting. Um, SiteGround has bespoke WordPress hosting, which means that it's tweaked and tuned to make your WordPress site go fast. And also it has free SSL certificates. Now, without over geeking you on this, an SSL certificate is something that you need to have for Google these days. It basically, very, very simple terms, means that you're, when somebody looks at your website, they're making a secure connection to your website. And it's a, a basic level of trust on the web. Now, when you go to a bank or you buy through Amazon, you're using your credit card details, you need a super duper kind of SSL connection. But most of us, just for websites to satisfy Google, we need a very basic level of SSL. And with SiteGround, it's really, really easy. I mean, I know how to, I, I know how to install these SSL certificates manually. Let me tell you, you don't want to do that. It's a pain and it's hard. You could also pay somebody to do it for you. Or if you get SiteGround hosting, you simply press a button, it auto installs it, and the SSL certificate is taken care of. And because obviously I have 10 websites on my SiteGround hosting, I get 10 SSL certificates bundled into my hosting. So it doesn't take very long. Those of you who know that you sometimes have to pay for SSL certificates. Those of you who pay for them will know that that pretty well covers the cost of my hosting. So SiteGround hosting, without a doubt, the best hosting that there is at the moment. These things change. I used HostGator for years, um, but HostGator became very poor. I changed and I moved to SiteGround. And I think you know pretty well anybody who's in the know will tell you that SiteGround is the best at the moment. So it, um, there are sort of premium models of WordPress hosting, but SiteGround is fine for just regular people with regular amounts of web traffic. Use WordPress with that. With WordPress, you could use themes. And I have used for years a theme called Optimize Press. We're now on to our Optimize 
Press version three. I've just paid for it because I don't even blink. I just buy the latest version of Optimized Press when it comes out. Now I started using Optimized Press in version one. I think I bought it virtually the minute it launched. I've been with Optimized Press for years since they launched the service. And I've been extremely happy with it. And Optimized Press is a site builder. Now I used Optimized Press because when I was an internet marketer, it used to allow me to create beautiful video and sales pages. That's primarily why I bought it. But as Optimized Press has evolved, it allows you to make membership sites and all sorts of things like that. Now, normally as a first time WordPress user, I would not recommend that you dive straight in for Optimized Press. Don't, don't do that because it's probably more complicated than you do. I would generally recommend you just get something pretty straightforward, maybe a free theme for WordPress. But just for those of you who are interested, those of you who are slightly more advanced, I'm currently using Optimize Press 3, having used Optimize Press 1 and 2 for years and years and years. I mean, we must be getting on to at least eight years for me using that theme on my WordPress blog. It's a long, long time. The other thing I use is Thrive Themes, and I'll put links for these on the resources page. Remember, so if you don't quite catch what I'm saying, you don't quite catch the spelling, it'll be on the resources page. Thrive Themes is, if you want a, a kind of a, a competitor for Optimized Press, it allows you to build all sorts of cool sales pages and video pages and things like that. And what I like to do is I actually run the two of them. Um, sometimes I use Thrive Themes, sometimes I use Optimized Press. And why I love Thrive Themes is it's really, it has all sorts of, um, well, I should say that Thrive as a business has all sorts of things that I use, all sorts of services that I pay for. And these are very marketing-y services. So I use Thrive Leads. Um, Thrive Leads allows me to bolt it into MailerLite and do all sorts of cool things like these lovely boxes, these light boxes that fly down. And when you go to exit a site, it will pop up and say, hey, um, subscribe to get a free book. Um, that's Thrive Leads. That's the service I use for that. I use something called Thrive Widgets which allows me to change what's in each widget on different pages. I use a service that allows me to test headlines on pages. And um, I don't use all of these all the time, um, but I, I want a service that allows me to do all these cool marketing -y things. And for that, I pay for Thrive Themes. That's why I have it, because it's a great, um, it's great marketing service that bolts into into WordPress. So again, that is going to be too advanced for many people. That's absolutely fine. Uh, a couple of other things I use, by the way, Thrive Ultimatum I have and Thrive Ovation. And these are just all marketing tools using the Thrive product that I can bolt into WordPress. And I say I don't use all of them all of the time. Some of them I don't use any of the time, but I just wanted a huge marketing suite that allows me to do everything that I want. So to enable me to do that in WordPress, I use Thrive and I use Optimize Press. I don't recommend either of those if you're brand new to WordPress. They are for you if you're accustomed to using WordPress. Maybe you've got a couple of years on the clock. Another one that I would recommend that you use because it's free is a website builder called Elementor. Elementor. And again, I'll put the link for this on the show notes. Elementor is excellent for building completely, well, exactly the page you want. So if you want a video on there, you want a countdown clock, you want to link it with MailerLite, Elementor will do all those things. So if you're getting started with website builders, try Elementor. You can actually just get the plugin for free. Try it on your existing site. You could use Elementor alongside an existing site. And what I've actually found quite often 
is that, that I will I have Elementor on a couple of my sites. And if I need to do something complex or bespoke, often I'll just use Elementor on one page to allow me to do that really simply. So I tend not to use a WordPress theme anymore. I use for all my blogs. If you look at self-publishing journeys, if you look at paulteague.com, my blog, that blog appearance is delivered using optimized press. That's how I do that. When I use, um, I use a lot of different kind of page formats and you won't see those a lot of the time. They're tucked out the way. If I do sales campaigns or something very bespoke, I'll tend to use Thrive themes or the optimized press marketing tools for that. And if I need to do something very bespoke, I'll just drop Elementor in. But for most of you, what I would recommend is SiteGround hosting, WordPress as your site, and then to just find, while you're getting used to it, a simple free theme just to get used to the way WordPress works. And generally with WordPress, you're going to need to get some kind of tuition with it. This is the problem with WordPress, is that actually it's what I recommend that you use long term if you're, if you're in this game in the long term, well, uh, but actually it comes with a slightly higher learning curve than something like Wix, Weebly and Squarespace. And that's often why people opt for those versions. But it is worth the investment in time. When you've got the hang of WordPress, it's really straightforward. One thing I will flag up with WordPress is that it's just undergone its biggest transition in years. And it, it's got something, it used something called the classic editor for years. And these days, it uses something, I, you can tell I don't use it because I'm trying to remember the name of it. I should have jotted this down. It uses something called, he says, looking at his, he says, looking at his um, plugins in WordPress to remember what it's called. It's called the block editor, uh, the block editor in WordPress. Now, WordPress changed this just a little while ago, and I hate the block editor. I think it's a big mistake on WordPress's part. I think it makes it slower, more cumbersome. Uh, it doesn't make the interface very nice to use. So I use with WordPress a special plugin, which is called, and I'll put a link to this again on the on the show notes for this week. It's just a simple plugin. It's free and it's called, where is it? The Classic Editor plugin. It's the Classic Editor plugin. That's all it is. That's what it's called. You install that. And what that allows you to do is to use WordPress in its old format. You just tell WordPress in that plugin, I want everything to look like the classic editor, not the block editor. And that way, you never have to look at this horrible block editor. Now, the, the classic editor is maintained until December 2021. Pretty sure that's the right date, 2021. So we don't have to think about this horrible block editor for another year, just over a year, about a year and a half. By which time, I'm hoping WordPress would have sorted out the block editor so they've half wrestled it into something usable. Now, if they haven't, if it's still as horrible as it is at the moment, then I'm going to have to have a good think about what I use, whether I continue to use WordPress. But for the next year and a half, I'm sticking with WordPress. And I, I'm just kind of trusting that WordPress will sort it out and get that block editor sorted out. What they did with the block editor is they were trying to make something that works like Elementor. And I got to tell you, they failed. It's, it's horrible. And um, I'd rather use Elementor, frankly. And the other thing is, is that you're still going to be able to use things like Optimize Press and, uh, and Thrive Themes and Elementor. You'll still be able to use those and bolt those in. So you're still going to be able to avoid the block editor if you want to. Um, so really what I'm saying with WordPress is don't use the block editor. Now, it's interesting. Some people who've never used WordPress before, they'll never know the difference. So if you're brand new to, to WordPress, 
try the block editor and see how you get on with it. Um, but those of you who are used to using WordPress, it's just a it's horrible thing. I, personally, I'm just blocking it for the next year and a half and hoping it goes away or at least improves. Now, I have, as I said to you, I think it's it's eight or ten websites. I can't remember how many sites I've got now. It might be eight, actually. I think I said ten earlier, didn't I? Let me just have a quick count. Yeah, it's eight at the moment. So I've got eight websites at the moment, not ten. And um, because I've got multiple WordPress sites, I use a service called ManageWP.com. And ManageWP.com allows me to manage my eight websites in one console. So one of the things you must do when you have a WordPress site is to update your plugins regularly. So with ManageWP, rather than logging into eight separate sites and doing all the plugins separately, I simply go into ManageWP, um, update my plugins, and it does it all at once. The other thing is, is if I wanted to install a new plugin on all eight sites, I would I could do that in one motion on uh, using ManageWP. So if you've got probably three sites and upwards, so it's getting a bit of a pain to log in and to, to manage the site, probably ManageWP is something that you want to look at. And by the way, I use that for free. But don't, but don't do it if you've got two sites, because it's quicker probably just to log in and do it separately. But when you're getting over three sites, it's a bit of a nuisance to be logging into each site. And Manage WP also, of course, remembers your passwords. It connects securely to your sites, so you're not managing multiple passwords. And again, I'll say it a couple of times throughout this presentation, I will leave the links to all of these softwares, just in case you didn't quite hear what I said. Uh, they usually have funny names so that you can find out what they are. And another thing with websites is I keep my domain names separate from my hosting. Now, that's a lesson I've learned over time, because when I used HostGator, I used HostGator for many years, and I was quite happy with it for many years. And then when it goes bad, it goes very bad and very quickly. And so if you have all your domain names connected to your hosting, it makes it a lot slower and harder to move to new hosting. Whereas when I, I've kept my domain names I buy them all in a service called fast hosts all of my domain names are with fast hosts and basically I, I do something and this is a little bit geeky but you just have to change where the name servers point to with your hosting so if I change my hosting I could build my new site on the new hosting and when that new site is ready I just change the name servers in fast host and it points from say hostgator and then it goes ding and it points over to siteground and it creates the minimal hassle when you're changing websites over. So it's just a little lesson I learned the hard way that as a rule of thumb, I like to keep my domain names somewhere completely separate from my hosting. It makes me more dynamic. It keeps the control, the ball in my court. And I use fast hosts for my domain names. They're not the cheapest domain names, but to be honest with you, you end up paying pretty well the same price for domain names at the end anyway. You might get it cheap in the first year, but they generally level out at about the same amount. So... SiteGround, WordPress, Optimize Press, Thrive Themes, Elementor, Fast Hosts, and Manage WP. One more thing that I want to mention to you is I use Security.net. Security.net, I'll leave the link on the show notes, to monitor the security on my website. And Security.net will scan my website and it will let me know whether there are any uh, security issues on those. And security.net, you can pay for that service. And if you pay for that service, I wouldn't recommend you do it unless you've got a really important business site. Um, but if you pay for security, you can actually, if you've got any kind of problems or hacks, your payment allows you to just um, give the people that security access and they'll sort it out for you. 
they'll just mend the website for you. So if you've got a, a website that you're doing a lot of tra traffic and business on, where it's really important if that site goes down, security.net are great. I've used them before. They've solved problems for me before. Brilliant service. But at the moment, I'm using the free service just to monitor the security on my website. So they'll flag up if there's any issues with that. Okay, so website is quite a long section. As we rattle on now, I'm just going to go through, I'll give you less information, but I can rattle through a lot more resources. But I think a website's so important, it's worth spending a little bit of time on that. One of the things you need to do nowadays is think of site security. And, and people are terrible. I work with a lot of businesses in my kind of corporate work. And the number of people that I see who have all their passwords written down in a notebook or on post-its, they're all stuck around their computer. Now, we did a, an interview in my corporate work that I do with a cybersecurity expert. And he actually made a really good point, which is it's absolutely fine to run, write all your passwords down in a notebook so long as you lock that away somewhere safe so it's in a locked drawer but if you carry that notebook around in your handbag somewhere where you could leave it and get lost that really isn't a very clever idea but this cyber security expert I, I always tend to the geeky solution but he was absolutely right if you're at work and you have a lockable drawer then it's just as secure in a notebook in a locked drawer that's that's fine, but don't carry it around with you. That's the thing that I see people doing, and it would be a disaster if that notebook got lost. So let me tell you what I use for security. And you'll see that a lot of websites these days, they use something called two-step verification. And usually two-step verification, when you log into a website, it sends you a text and it gives you a code and you put the code in and it lets you in. Now, because I've been, uh, I did a web, I did a podcast a year ago about the blockchain and I got very, very into learning about blockchain security. And I've really kind of ramped up my personal security as a result of all the learning I did around the blockchain when I ran that podcast. So let me tell you what I do now because I was using text verification. And I was using Google Authenticator, which is a free app that you could just download onto your phone. And if you use Google Authenticator, what it does basically is it generates a six-digit code, which then allows you to access softwares. Now, when I was learning about uh, the blockchain and cryptocurrencies, I learned that if you use two-step verification, a lot of people have crypto accounts and have had lots of money stolen from mobile phones. Because and this is particularly in the US, I think, in the States. I've not heard about cases in the UK. But what was happening is that um, sort of cyber hackers were getting phone or SIM cards ported over. Um, they were ringing up fraudulently saying that they were the owner of a SIM card and that they got a new phone. And that the phone companies weren't doing the proper security checks. They were just porting over a SIM card. And so therefore, these hackers were able to get the security texts sent to this new phone. So the solution to that is don't use text verifications. Um, and the next step is use Google Authenticator. Well, when I started learning more about the way that people use security for the blockchain and, and, and for sort of Bitcoin and things like that, one of the problems with using Google Authenticator is that if you lose your phone, you could lose the access to the codes. So you can actually get locked out. And so I learned a new step for that. And this is what I now use on all my sites. I don't use Google Authenticator anymore. I now use a site called Authy, A-U-T-H-Y. I'll put the link on the show notes. So what Authy does is it's just like Google Authenticator in that it will generate secure PIN numbers on your 
phone. So that gets rid of the, the issues with being sent texts. Um, but what happens then if you lose your phone? Well, Authy allows you to access your codes via your PC as well. So if you ever do lose your phone, you can then retrieve your codes. And that's something that Google Authenticator doesn't allow you to do just yet. So if you are using an Authenticator app, um, I, I well, I'm not going to recommend anything here. I'm just going to tell you what I do. So this is not sort of technical advice. I'm not a technical expert. This is just my learning. But I'm using Authy to do that. It's a simple uh, app on my phone, generates codes. And um, I'm also able to access my Authy account should I ever lose my phone, I can access that on my PC as well. The other thing that I use for my passwords and I've used for years is LastPass. This is why I sound very Southern. So if you're in the North of England, it's LastPass. If you're in the South of England, it's LastPass. And if you're in the US or anywhere in the world, you won't know what on earth I'm talking about. LastPass is a secure password wallet. It has military grade encryption. It works in the cloud. If I change a password, in my on my PC, it will automatically sync up securely with my mobile phone. I can use it on my mobile phone. On my phone, I have it locked by my fingerprint rather than by codes, again, to make it as secure as possible. I've used it for years. Do your own. Where we're doing site security, I'm going to tell you to do your own due diligence, do your own research. This is not technical advice. I am not a technical security expert. I'm just telling you what I use and the thought processes to why I got there. But I use LastPass for password management. There are many others that you could use. Is, um, is Dashlane one? I think Dashlane's one as well. I used to use RoboForm as well. I've used all of these things. But LastPass is the one I've settled on and that I get on really well with. Um, and I'm sort of, I've been happy with it for very many years. And that's why I use I used to store my passwords and to generate secure passwords for websites. Now, let me tell you, I often feel like Cassandra when I'm talking about the web because I tell people that things are coming often before they become they come along. Until websites can take a sample of your DNA or your blood or your saliva, we're stuck with passwords. And password security, site security is going to become a really, really big deal over the coming years. It already is a big deal, but it's going to become more and more of a big deal. Um, so it's really important that you get into this and you sort out your security. This is not going to go away. It's not satisfactory to write passwords on your hand and hope you don't forget them. It's not satisfactory to use rubbishy passwords. You know, you've really got to grasp this. And if you start to use tools like I'm describing to you now, you will be able to do that. And again, with, with security in mind, um, I'm, I have Avast, A-V-A-S-T. Avast is what I use on my computer and on my mobile phone. And I've just actually reviewed my mobile phone security based on this cybersecurity podcast that we did um, in my corporate work. It was a really good podcast, actually. And uh, I might put a link to it on the um, on the show notes. I'm, I'm always a little bit wary about sharing stuff that I've done in my corporate work. No, I won't put a link on it because I don't really want to mix my corporate work with what I do um, on the podcast. But um, one of the sort of one of the recommendations he was talking about mobile phone security. And whilst I kind of know what to do on a PC, I'm, I'm not happy. I, I, although I'm geeky, I don't really get the technology on mobile phones. I don't do any banking or anything private on a mobile phone. I just wouldn't do it because I, I think they're less secure than, than computers are. And I, and I don't know enough about security on mobile phones. But um, across the board... I use the Avast service. Now, years ago, um, I've used all sorts of things. I used to use AVG, 
and it then it and it was free and it was brilliant and it but it became too bloated and so I stopped using it. Can't remember what I used before AVG, but I've used Avast for years. Never used Norton. I hate Norton. I don't use Kaspersky. Is it whatever it is? And there's another one. Oh, uh, McAfee. I don't use McAfee either. Um, never use those, and I hate them. And I used to recommend people don't use them. Now the reason I use Avast is I think the problem with you know Norton and McAfee have got a lot to answer for, in that they keep giving sort of false alarms. If you use those things, they keep sort of saying, oh, alert, 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 this could be dangerous, that could be dangerous. And it frightens the life out of normal website users. Well, frankly, anything could be dangerous online, potentially. Um, and, and it just, it kind of creates the impression. You know, if my mum was on it, for instance, my mum's 81, my mum would think the Russians were invading with everything she clicked on. My mum's nervous enough as it is. A simple update message, you know, my mum's sort of thrown, my mum's online life is thrown into turmoil. I've just bought my mum a Chromebook. Um, and set it up for us. So it's got three buttons on for the web, for Skype, and what's the other thing? For her emails. That's it. It's got three buttons on. There are no updates for her to do. There are no warnings or messages. And it's the simplest thing I can think of my mum for my mum to use. Because every time something says, oh, you know, do you want to update this? She's panicking about if it's the Russians invading and that sort of thing. Um, and this is why I hate uh, Kaspersky, whatever it's called, uh, McAfee and Norton. Um, I don't like those as softwares at all. The reason I like Avast is it just runs in the background and it protects my PC. Now, you can get Avast for free. Uh, the kids, and I think my wife have got it for free, but I pay on, I pay on my computer because they're just messing around on computers. I, I've got all sorts of stuff on my computers that I wouldn't want to be sort of hacked in any way. Uh, they're, on, they're just using Facebook and things like that. So um, I've got Avast on my computer. Um, and also I use Avast, I was demonstrating it to a colleague at work today. I have Avast on my mobile phone. It scans my mobile phone every day automatically. Um, I have a VPN that Avast um, supplies on my mobile phone. VPNs are what you should use if you're in costas or in public Wi-Fi areas. It gives you a secure connection. I have an app locker, which allows me to lock down apps. Um, so uh, everything that's private in my apps, you have to put your fingerprint on to get into google drive dropbox and things like that avast gives me that um, and also it has this wonderful system where if i lose my mobile phone it will allow me to locate it on a map it allows me to take a photograph of the person who's holding it It'll automatically and remotely let me take a photograph of your face either with the front or the back camera let's hope it's your face i capture uh, when, when i take a photograph at the time but also it allows me to put an alarm on to say that the phone is lost. So it allows me, I can mark it as lost. It'll go alert. This phone has been lost or stolen. And it, it, the, the phone will talk to you. So if you're holding my phone, you've nicked my phone, it'll suddenly start making this alarm go off, which I can send remotely. The other thing I could do on my phone is I could download all the data off it and then I can wipe it. So if I really have lost it and can't get it, I could do download all my files and I can then wipe it remotely. And the last thing I can do with it, um, not that I take private pictures on my phone, but if you're one of these people who take, inverted commas, private pictures, it creates a special vaulted area that no one can get into. So it locks your private pictures at a special vault. So if your phone did get found, none of your private pictures are going to get found. Now, um, by private pictures, you, you know what I mean, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But I'm also talking about things like, you know, when I, my kids were young, um, I didn't, I never posted pictures. I don't tend to post pictures of my kids online. Um, I, they've a right to a private life as far as I could. And I certainly didn't do it when they were small, even though I had an online life. 
Um, and if I, in the very, very rare occasions that I did, they were in situations where you couldn't identify, they were, you know, a brawl or something like that. Um, so I think maybe one or two I, I shared just for publicity purposes where you could never have identified, uh, where we were. Uh, we were in a sort of temporary location. So Avast is really good for that. And I say, you know, private pictures don't have to be rude pictures. They might just be pictures. You know, we've all got sort of private pictures. It might be you on the Raz in town or something like that. Just pictures you don't want other people to find if the phone got lost. And Avast does that for you. So um, I'm going to really recommend Avast. I, I pay for it. I have it and everything. And I have all their service. I use a VPN. I, um, a VPN is a secure connection. Uh, it allows me to log into sites when I'm in Spain. VPNs, again, are going to become a big thing that everybody's using in future. So um, it's well worth looking at uh, Avast. That's the one I use personally. So social scheduling. Um, I used Buffer and have used Buffer for years, but literally as I'm recording this, they are just going through an interface change and I dislike it intensely. Why, oh why, oh why do software services insist on changing the interface when no one was asking for it? Were you asking for it if you use Buffer? I certainly wasn't asking for it. I was a very happy customer. And now I'm an unhappy customer having used Buffer for years because they didn't do a staff survey. They didn't do a user survey. They didn't ask the audience. They didn't say, is there anything you're unhappy about it? Instead, they changed it. I don't like it all of a sudden. Now, it's not just because my, you know, it's like, I always say it's like changing the shelves around in a supermarket. You know, the bread's there somewhere. You can't find it. It's not just because I've got that syndrome. I really don't like it. They've just suddenly overcomplicated. It's not working for me. It's disrupted my workflow. And at that point, that's the point at which I say, right, what else is out there? So normally I would say to you for social scheduling, I would have very, very confidently said to you, use Buffer. It's free for three social media networks, and then you start to pay if you have more than three networks. And I've used Buffer happily for years. So right at this moment, I'm in transition. As I'm recording this, I've written to Buffer and said, can I go back to the old console? Are you going to force me into this new one? Because I really don't like it. Um, so I'm waiting to see whether they're going to let me switch to the old console, and how lo long they're going to let me to do that, uh, let me do that. Um, if they don't let me do it, then I'm probably going to change. And so I'm, I don't really, I'm not really posting a lot on social media at the moment. So, um, I'm happy to use Facebook to schedule. So I'm just using my Facebook page and I'm just scheduling it on my page. I'm just using the schedule function on Facebook because at the most I'm pre forward scheduling maybe three uh, Facebook posts. That's all I'm doing. I'm not really using Facebook very much these days. So I'm quite happy using the internal scheduling system. And this is really hilarious because I was going to go back to Hootsuite. I've never really, I don't think Hootsuite have ever quite got it right for, for scheduling, but I might have another look at Hootsuite again and see what that interface looks like because I'm really not getting on with this new Buffer interface. But Hootsuite's absolutely fine. But I didn't, in the, in the battle between Hootsuite and Buffer, Buffer won, but now Buffer's changed its interface. I might be going back to Hootsuite. But I actually um, dug out TweetDeck, which is years old. And in actual fact, just simply for forward scheduling on Twitter, if you've only got a few posts, TweetDeck is perfectly all right. So with social scheduling, I am a bit in a bit of flux with this at the moment. So I mentioned a few tools there. What I would really like to be able to say to you is, oh, Buffer have seen the light. They've just put things back or they've let you use the old interface. Just use Buffer. It was great and it still is great. But at the moment, I can't recommend Buffer to you. I, I can tell you to check it out and see if it bothers you as much as it bothers me. It might, it might not. It was the tool absolutely the number one tool to use for years but um 
if you don't get on with that, try out those other tools that I've mentioned. Let's move on to email marketing. I've already mentioned MailerLite. I've done email marketing for years. So when I started email marketing, I started, would you believe, with a do-it-yourself open source version. I can't, what was it called? I can't even remember what it was called now. And it was not very good. It did the job. It was free. And I built my first list of 25 subscribers in that system. Um, and then I realized, as I learned more and more, I first bought, I bought Aweber. That was the first service I paid for. Aweber was very good. Aweber is still very good. It's, I always call it the BBC of the email marketing world. It is, it's very steady. It's very reliable. Um, but it's not very sexy. And mailer lights like the Channel 4. Now, that, sorry, those references won't mean anything to you if you're in the US, uh, but they will to people in the UK. Um, Channel 4 is a bit edgy, a bit sexy. BBC is a bit straight and very reliable. Um, so that's how I feel about uh, something like Aweber. It's a great reliable service, but actually MailerLite's a bit sexier. And so I really like MailerLite because it's cheap. It still offers you, is it 2,000, 2,500 contacts for free? I'm paying for it, but it's very cheap when you pay for it. It creates landing pages, which look very nice. I mentioned that to you in passing in the website section. It has automations, which are incredibly important. It'll, and the automations are getting better. It allows you to have rules, um, complex rules like, you know, if you click this link, then put do this. It's um, if-then rules, I call them. If you click this link, then put you to this list. And I think they've got tagging and things. They've got all these lovely rules you can do. So it's quite a complex system. And it's very cheap and it works. Now, MailerLite did have a problem recently in that one of their servers got blacklisted by Google and, and they had an email deliverability issue. But they communicated very clearly around that and they did, they put steps in place to put it right. So, um, you know, stuff happens when you're running software services. Sometimes things go wrong. Always look at how companies deal with it. When things go wrong, that's really the question you've got to ask yourself. How do they deal with it? Do they communicate clearly? Do they tell you what they're doing to put it right? And do they put it right quickly? And in that situation, I was happy with the way MailerLite dealt with it. Things go wrong sometimes. And, and I was happy with the way MailerLite dealt with it. Um, LastPass, since I've been using LastPass, I think they've had two security scares. They handled those security scares well. Um, I always say to people when I'm doing corporate training, have a look at how your bank or how the bank's handle a security scare. The normal way that a bank would handle a security scare was to put their head in the ground, deny it, hide it, not say anything about it. And then when the papers discover it, apologize and say lessons have been learned. This is after a thousand bank accounts have been hacked or something like that. Okay, so that's usually how the banks handle it. Um, whereas with LastPass, the minute they think they've got a breach, they let you know and they force a main password change. And then they tell you, they just keep you informed. And then actually, I don't think it was breached. They, they, they'd update you and say, actually, it wasn't a breach or it was only these accounts. So all you can expect really of a service, because they will get hacked, is that they use the right protocols. And in the case of LastPass, in the case of MailerLite, when they had something bad happen, they communicated it clearly. They dealt with it well. And that's really, I think, all you can expect. So I'm happy with MailerLite at the moment. and I'm not going anywhere. Now, I used, um, so I used Aweber. I've used Infusionsoft, which is very expensive. You don't need it unless you're a big business. It's very, very, very expensive. It's complicated. Actually, I think there are better things out there than Infusionsoft now. I, don't, I wouldn't use Infusionsoft now. I wouldn't recommend it. But I, there was a time in my business when I did use Infusionsoft when I was internet marketing. I've even tried uh, um, uh, putting email on my own server. Don't do it. 
don't go there. Don't do that. All right. I tried it. I had a very techie guy who did it. Um, I paid for some software. We worked through some things and I said, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to pay someone to take the strain over the server issues with email marketing. So MailChimp is very popular. Um, it, uh, until, uh, to be honest with you, MailChimp was the thing I would have recommended to you because it was free. Was it 2,000 contacts? You Actually, it was, it's 1,000 contacts in Mailerized. It was 2,000 in, in MailChimp. But MailChimp have recently changed their pricing structure. To be honest with you, MailChimp is looking a bit like a Frankenstein's monster now. The, the interface is not good. It's clunky. Um, they've changed their pricing structure now, so it doesn't make it very appealing. I, I wouldn't use MailChimp now. I wouldn't recommend it. I, and I used to use it for corporate training just because it was the most popular and the most widely known. I still use it for corporate training, though I, would, you know, I don't really recommend it. It's, unfortunately, it's still probably the best thing for corporate training. Um, but for you, as an author, that's who I'm talking to in this podcast, I would recommend MailerLite. I also used GetResponse for many years and got on extremely well for it. It was a brilliant internet marketing tool. I loved it. it had automations and things like that in. But when I was an author, uh, not quite right for me as an author. MailerLite worked really well for me. Um, and I've also used ConvertKit, by the way. I had an unfortunate experience with ConvertKit. I know a lot of people love ConvertKit. But when I, when I moved and tried ConvertKit... They were having server problems and I was, and they, and they weren't delivering emails and things were going wrong. To be honest with you, I wasn't very happy with the way they handled it. I think they were basically going, they were growing very fast and I think they were having teething problems with growing fast. And I just happened to catch them at a bad time. They didn't really handle it very well. And because I needed my, my system to work, I thought, well, that's it. I'm going to come back to this at a later date, but I'm off now. I went to MailerLite. I've been happy with MailerLite. So I'm staying with MailerLite. So I hear a lot of people saying that ConvertKit's good now. Um, it was good when I used it. It just was giving me too many problems, so I, I went. Um, but I think what I would say to you is, if you're an author, an indie author, and you need to get started with this, just use MailerLite. It's the simplest thing. I think ConvertKit is for the next step. It's a little bit more evolved than most people need. MailerLite's just what most people use. It gives you landing pages, which also solves your website problem. It has automations. It's free up to a 1,000 users. It's a great little bit of kit, MailerLite. So that is my number one recommendation. One of the things you're going to have to do a lot as an indie author is to, is to create graphics. You're going to need to create promotional graphics for social media, maybe for your blog, um, you know, for, for book bub promos and things like that, for adverts. So I've assembled a lot of tools I get on really well with. And bearing in mind, I learned how to use Photoshop with the BBC. I have Photoshop on this computer, but I don't use it anymore. I don't need Photoshop anymore. There's just no point having Photoshop anymore. Um, and, and you're talking to somebody who used it um, in, in a business environment for many years. You just don't need it anymore. It's pointless. Um, and, and the people I work and have trained with in corporate use, I tell them not to use Photoshop anymore. So what I'm, I'm going to tell you is a series of tools that allow me allows me to do all the things I need to do in my indie author business without generally without paying for it. So number one, Canva. Use Canva. Don't pay for it. Use it for free. Put a ten dollar credit on the photographs, and you and then pay for a photograph one dollar at a time. If you if you can't use the free photos, often you have less choice in there. Um, then use the, the dollar photos. I usually put a $10 credit on um, so that when I can't find a free photo to illustrate what I want to, I just pay a dollar a time to get the rights to use a photograph. And that $10 lasts me for ages. Canva is brilliant. It will give you properly sized Facebook headers, 
Facebook images, Instagram images, Twitter images, all beautifully sized so you're not chopping heads off. So the photo is perfectly sized for each social media channel. It'll do the same for Pinterest. It'll allow you even to create properly sized ebook covers and it gives you templates for that. It gives you fonts. It's absolutely brilliant. If you haven't tried Canva, get a free account. You don't need to pay for it. We pay for it in my corporate environment only because we have corporate fonts and to upload our corporate fonts we have to pay for the service that's the only reason we pay for it in my personal business in what i do i don't pay for it the only thing i pay for is images at a dollar a time every author needs to have canva at their fingertips i pretty well use it every day all my graphics for the podcast there i can batch produce graphics i can do a save as you know a copy i can mass produce everything it's absolutely something you need to get into is canva I also use Bookbrush. This is a new kid on the block for me, but they've just they've just started producing amazing, amazing graphics where you can superimpose your book cover on 3D images. And, and this is just, it's a killer tool if you're using any kind of advertising online. And I used to have to pay graphics designers to do this. I used to have to pay people on Fiverr to do this. Never going to have to do that again with Bookbrush. It creates something like 100, 200 amazing images for pinterest for twitter just with the click of a button just upload the flat image from your book that you get from the cover designer um, and you just press a button and it creates all these images magically now book brush is available for free i pay for the account annually because once i'd used it for free and, and i'd taken a, a trial i just thought i want that now it's not an expensive piece of software but because um, particularly when i'm rapid releasing I'm going to need loads and loads of different promo images. That tool is fantastic. It allows you to create sized uh, promo images for BookBub ads and things like that. I think it's a must-have tool now alongside Canva. If you're doing any kind of social promotion, then you need to have Canva and BookBrush, I would say. And there is an affiliate link. I'm not saying that just because there's an affiliate link. Uh, I have an affiliate link because I love it so much. I, I, it's a service that I endorse and recommend, and I would highly recommend that you have it in your your armory if you're doing any kind of promotional graphics for your book another service that i use is my e-cover maker and this is another service that i use as, a, as an affiliate because if i ever need to create 3d images so for instance stuart base has sent me um, six flat covers and they cost me less money to get produced when you get flat covers they cost less money to do and using my eCover Maker, I can upload those flat covers. And my eCover Maker will make all sorts of three-dimensional paperbacks, hardbacks. It'll give me a whole armory of 3D images, which I can then use and superimpose and use for promo books. So what I do with my eCover Maker, and I'm going to do this shortly, is generally I use the free service, which gives you limited 3D uh, templates. And then actually, those are, those are pretty good. But I actually like to create the whole range of templates. So with my cover maker, I, I keep a free account. And what I do is I just upgrade it. And I'm going to do this in the next couple of weeks before I do rapid release. I upgrade it for a month. And I think it costs me something like $15, something like that. It's not very much for a month. And I make loads and loads of 3D images at one sitting. And then I cancel it at the end of the month because I don't need it all the time. I just need it occasionally. And so all of my books... So I'm going to do it before I do rapid release. All the new covers that I get, I'll get 3D versions of them, loads of them, and I'll download them and I'll put them in a folder and it means like forevermore, I've then got 3D versions of those covers. So if you ever see my books in 3D, they've usually been done using my cover maker 
and I just upgrade every now and then about, you know, 50 pounds, something like that. That's a ballpark figure. And, um, and I batch produce them. That's the trick. Use the service intelligently, upgrade it for a month when you've got several images that need processing, do a load of them and then cancel for the month and go back to the free account. And that way you'll get really good value for your money. Uh, something I just want to let you know that I've just discovered recently, and you might not ever use it, but if you've ever had to cut out images, I, I remember training for this years ago at the BBC. So 18 years ago, I was taught how to do this in Photoshop, and I was never any good at it on Photoshop. I've always been useless at it. Um, if you want to cut out an image, so you've got an image and you want to cut out the background and you just want the image, it's really hard to do. And I've experimented with some sites. It's getting easier. You can get online sites, but I've discovered a brilliant one in my corporate work. And I, I'm going to recommend it here. You might have no use for it, but this it's, the, it's brilliant. Put the link on the resources pages. Um, but it's www.remove.bg. That's the web URL. And it's absolutely amazing. If you put a picture of like a duck on a pond, you'd upload the photo and it's absolutely incredible. It, it, with beautiful precision, without fuzzy edges and things like that, it will extract the duck so that you can then put the duck on another... Um, background absolutely amazing best tool i've ever seen and it's free and um, so i'll put the link for that on the show notes for this edition when it comes to writing i've already told you right at the beginning of this that i use scrivener there's no other writing tool for me it's got to be scrivener i think most people will tell you that now a lot of people don't like scrivener and the problem with scrivener is that it's not a cloud-based software so if i had to write with a cloud-based software i would use google drive simple it's unbloated it's in the cloud i can access it on my phone on my chromebook on my laptop wherever i am in the library i can always access those files and i can download them i can share them with an editor i can download them as a doc file share them with an editor or i can share the cloud file with an editor and see all the train changes and track changes so google drive is pretty pretty good um, if you want a free option i format my books with vellum it's nothing else for me vellum is the software if you, you, you know i there are not many things that I will say to you, just get this software. That's what I feel with Vellum. If you're going to write more than two or three books, just get Vellum. If you're in this for the long game, just buy Vellum because you'll make your money back on Vellum after one or two paid for formats if you pay somebody else to do it. I'm telling you, as somebody who's manually formatted books in the past in Word, because that's how we used to have to do it in the old days, um, it's a nightmare of a job. And in terms of my time alone, I loved Vellum the minute I found it. Vellum will allow you to regularly and dynamically update your files, to version your book files. It's a thing of great beauty. You know, if you're in this for the long term, just buy it. Just buy the thing outright and be done with it, and then you own it forever. So Vellum and Scrivener. And then also for planning, I'll mention it. It's my favorite tool for planning. It's called the Novel Factory. It allows me to cast my characters. You could do that in Story Shop too, but I just don't like Story Shop. Um, cast your characters. Um, I put photos with my characters. I use actors for them and just give them names and little, you know, just a couple of notes about who they are and what they do and what they're like. But I use the downloadable version of Novel Factory. You may like the cloud version of Novel Factory and it does have a, a free trial. But that, those are the tools I use to write. Um, and I get on very well with them. I'm recording this right now, and I've used this for years. If you ever need to record video, um, and, and you can't sort of just record directly into a webcam in, in YouTube, if you can't do that, I use uh, a service and have done for years 
called Camtasia. Now, I use Camtasia. I'm actually recording this podcast into Camtasia now. I use it for my podcast every week um, because it allows me to record audio and edit audio. And it's interesting, having worked with the BBC for years, uh, and I, when I started my career at the BBC, I, I learned how to edit on quarter-inch tape. That's how old I am. And we moved from quarter-inch tape to mini-discs. Mini-discs were a nightmare. They used to wipe interviews and do awful things. But we used mini-discs for a while. Used to hate those things. The number of headaches I had from mini discs. Anyhow, we move, we transitioned quickly from mini discs to sort of MP3 files and wave based systems. And, and a lot of people think that because you're in broadcasting, oh, it has to be super complicated. And, you know, men particularly are very bad at this. Middle aged men my age actually are very, uh, they, they overcomplicate stuff and they think you're going to have a software that has all bells and whistles on it. And let me tell you, in broadcasting, we didn't have time to mess around. We were producing stuff so fast. I just needed a simple editing interface to go cut, 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 cut on the air. We, we couldn't be messing around with stuff like that. And, and so that's a misconception often about broadcasting. People think that, oh, you know, love it. I've got to have the best software for this. And it has to be complicated. And so the reason I like Cantasia is actually it's the closest software to what I was editing on the BBC when I left. It's a very, very simple, very fast software for editing audio. Now, a lot of people will tell you they use Audacity, which is a free software i hate audacity um you know as someone who's been editing uh, audio for 18 years i hate audacity it's too fiddly for my tastes um but i use camtasia but the reason i use camtasia is a paid for software i use camtasia because also if i ever do and i'm doing less of this nowadays when i did training um you could do slides um you could record your slides with your audio commentary with it and, and you can um, also have your webcam on at the same time so people can see your face while you're talking um, and I use it for podcast recording as well and, and I used it for my video editing as well so mainly I use it virtually virtually I've used it several times a week to record these podcasts and edit these podcasts even though primarily it's a video editing tool but also I use it for any video edit any video that I ever record I've used it hugely over the years to record how-to videos and presentations everything you ever find from me online where I'm doing how-to um, it's used in Camtasia and I also use Camtasia because it's for instance if I was doing a how to install WordPress video um, Camtasia will allow me to record my screen as well so that you can see exactly what I'm doing on my screen so uh, in terms of video recording or podcast audio recording for me, Camtasia is the tool of choice, not the only tool. Most people, it's fair to say, use Audacity. I hate it. I won't touch it. Camtasia is what I use. It has a free trial. It might be too complicated for people, but it's the closest thing to the BBC that I've ever seen, and I love it, and I've used it for ever since I left the BBC. Actually, before the BBC, I was using it at the BBC. So I've used Camtasia probably since 2008, 2009. In fact, the first course I ever sold, the one that made six figures, the, the most lucrative course I ever sold when I was a, an internet marketer. I recorded on, on Camtasia and I recorded many of those videos while I was still working at the BBC. That, that's how much I love Camtasia. Podcasts. What do I use for podcasts? If you are interested in doing podcasts, I'm not going to dwell on this because I know a lot of you don't. But if I'm recording podcasts where I need to see you, so our faces are on the screen, I would use Zoom. I also use Zoom for live meetings. So if I wanted to have a meeting with a client, I, I would use Zoom so that we could both see each other and I can share my screen. So if you were doing a consultation with me, if you if you said to me, Paul, I want to you know pay you for an hour, show me how to set up WordPress, I would use Zoom. 
we would talk to each other on the video so that you could see me. And then at a certain point, I would screen share so that you could see what I was doing on my screen. And at the end of the call, it would have recorded all of that video. So at the end of the call, I would send you the video too so that you could replay it and you could replay that training session. So Zoom is great for that. Uh, it's also great for recording podcasts. I use Libsyn to host my podcast. And the reason I use Libsyn is because it syndicates so well. So when I've recorded this, it will go. it's being recorded in Camtasia. Any little edits I need to do, I'll put into Camtasia. I'll produce it as an MP3 file. I'll upload the MP3 file into Libsyn. Uh, I'll put some metadata in there, and then I will put it on a timer to publish at the time that I want it to publish. And Libsyn will automatically send it to Facebook. It'll send it to Twitter. It'll send it to iTunes, to Stitcher. It'll send it to iHeartRadio. It'll send it to Spotify. Uh, have I said YouTube? I feel like I'm on the generation game here. That'll be nothing to people in the US. Um, I feel like I'm on the conveyor belt of the generation game. Um, it automatically syndicates it. So Libsyn is, is, is gets me all over the place with one press of a button and it's reasonably priced. Um, and it, it does all sorts of sort of cool things that syndicate this, this, this podcast. So Libsyn is my number one choice for that. And to, to, to sort out the audio, to even it out, to take out the, the peaks and troughs, to remove sort of buzzes. It usually seems to remove the, the hum of my fan in the background here. I can hear it really audibly in my ears, but it seems to be that by the time it goes out you can't hear that you can however hear my it can't remove the impossible so my squeak my squeaky chair it can't remove those but it does tidy up the audio i use something called orphonic just to tidy up the audio and to even out the levels of the audio and that's particularly important when i record interviews with somebody else because often our levels aren't quite right um, you can adjust that manually i just get on with orphonic it just does it for me and the other thing about orphonic is um, again i'm not going to go into this in great detail because this is just about sharing resources, really, and pointing you in the right direction. But Orphonic allows me to do, do something super cool. So at the beginning and the end of my podcast, you always hear the music, and the music fades out over my voice at the beginning, and it comes up nicely over my voice at the end. Well, that's all carefully timed. I don't have to mix it every week. I simply upload my MP3 file, and Orphonic allows me to have those jingles, those pre-mixed and pre-faded jingles in, and it magically times it so it never clashes with my voice. And so that also saves me a lot of processing time. Orphonic takes care of that across the board. So I've got all these little templates in for my audio, and I don't have to be mixing that every week. So it's a really good time-saving tool as well. So for podcasts, Libsyn, Orphonic, Zoom, Camtasia for the audio. Let's move on to web links now. And you could use web links for all sorts of things. Now, if you use WordPress, you'll be familiar probably with link shorteners, uh, bit.ly, tiny URL has been going for years, tiny URL has. And I think Google used to have a, I don't know whether they still have a link shortener. Was it Google.le, something like that? And um, often you'll want to use link shorteners. Now, I don't like to use bit.ly or these link shorteners because actually they're quite spammy if you're a, a fisher p-h-i-s-h or you're sending people to some kind of a scam site those are great ways of hiding uh dodgy links frankly and i'm sure that we go through phases of of things like this not being very popular on stuff like facebook and whatnot because basically you know you can send 
dodgy content through those links. When I click on a Bitly link, I don't know what I'm clicking on. So I prefer to use something a bit more branded and professional looking. So if you've got a WordPress site, use a plugin called Pretty Links, P-R-E-T-T-Y, Pretty Links. You'll see I use Pretty Links for all my affiliate links. And what it does is it tidies up a link, but it lets you do it via your domain name. So I could send you a Pretty Link to a, a horrible, horrible convoluted affiliate link that was something like paulteague.com slash zoom, for instance. So I can send you a nice, tidy, shortened link. When you click on that link, it will redirect to the more complicated link. But it's branded and more trustworthy because it has my domain name on it. Pretty Links lets you do that. It does it for free. I pay for Pretty Links because I have all the extra services on there as well. And one of the other things Pretty Links does is it will count your clicks. It'll count the unique clicks and the um, total clicks. Unique clicks is really what you're monitoring. And what I tend to do is when I'm trying out a new service, an affiliate service on my website, I use a pretty link so that I can see how many clicks I'm getting on an affiliate service. So I can see whether it's frankly, whether the people are even interested in that affiliate service. So I can decide whether to drop it and replace it with something that works better. So if you use WordPress, look at pretty links. It's a really good way of managing uh, certainly affiliate links, but also longer links or links that you want to track. Now, if you are sending people to your book links, you need to have geo-targeted links. So um, hopefully, uh, depending on where you are in your career, you might not know this, but Amazon, if you're in the UK, you'll go to amazon.co.uk. If you're in the States, you'll go to amazon.com. If you're in Spain, you'll go to something like amazon.es. So many countries have different Amazon sites. And if I send you to the UK link for one of my books, if you try and buy it in the States or in Spain, Amazon will say, you need to go and buy this on amazon.com. You need to buy it on your local site. And that creates friction in the buying process. So when you're, you want to buy a book, you want to click it and buy it. You don't want to be messing around, having to log into a different site and all that nonsense. So this is why we have geo links so that I can share special link to my book. And when you click on it, it will automatically go to your local Amazon site to allow you to buy my book with one click. Now that's fine if you're just on Amazon, but what if you're on Google? What if you're on Barnes and Noble? What if you're on iBooks too? Well, there are options for both eventualities, all, all eventualities. So I'm using for, for, for Amazon links, I'm using a, a service called Genius. I'll put the link to this because it's something like genie.us, something like that. Genius is what I'm using at the moment. And that allows me to have trackable links that automatically redirect to the Amazon service where you live, therefore creating less friction when you buy. Now, when I'm wide, I use the draft to digital free service which is called Books to Read. And what Books to Read does is allows me to share a link and then it's called a universal link. And it's best to use this if you're wide, if you're on Google, if you're on Barnes & Noble, if you're on iBooks, because what it enables readers to do is click on your link. They can set a preference the first time they use it to say, I always buy my books from Google. And thereafter, when they use universal links, they'll always go to the, the Google version or whatever they, they chose of your book. And that's really good. It makes a really neat and tidy buying process. But you should use these services. You should use Genius Link. You should use or check them out. You should use uh, the Book Linker service, the Books to Read service that's free 
from books to read. Genius Link, by the way, is a paid service. So if you're watching the pennies, you might want to stick with books to read, which will still allow people to just go to Amazon books if you want to do that. I just think Genius Link's a little bit smarter, a little bit tidier if you're in um, only in Amazon. And also, um, I can't really recommend this yet because it's quite early days for me, but I think Reader Links does something similar. At the time of recording this, I'm still investigating Reader Links, but Reader Links is, is I'm going to recommend that you look at that. Um, but the services I'm using at the moment are Genius um, and the Books to Read service from Draft the Digital. And for my own personal affiliate links um, and for links where it's important that they, they look branded um, and, and sort of trustworthy, I use Pretty Links, which you can only use in WordPress. Again, all the links are going to be on the resources page. If you think it might be interesting to, if you think that's something you want to check out, take a look at the links and see whether it's for you or not. These are just the ones that I use. I just wanted to mention accounting services. This is, I'm afraid, if you're in the US, just go and make a cup of tea just for a few minutes, just when I'm talking about this. Because I can't really, um, you know, we've all got different tax systems and things like this. But I did just want to mention, if you are new and you want to account for your services separately, I just wanted to let you know what I'm using for my accounts. So if you're a sole trader or a limited company, most of us will be sole traders until we start making a fortune on our books. Sole trader is perfectly all right in the first instance in the UK. Um, I use QuickBooks Self-Employed. Uh, I've got on very well with that, but um, I'm just trialing at the moment, not not for my author business, for something else I do that has to go through a business account. Uh, I'm just using something new, which is called Counting Up. It's um, If there's a problem with uh, using uh, accounting softwares, my QuickBooks self-employed software is very good, but it links to my banking software and it brings in all my banking trans transactions that I make through my, 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 business, my author account. And then I have to go through it. I never do it because I'm busy. I have to go through each transaction and reconcile it and say, this was marketing, this was training, you know, this was utility bills, whatever. And I have to do that manually. And that's a pain and I don't do it very often. And, um, you know, you're being offered different things all the time. And so I, I saw something on Facebook the other day, and I've, I'm downloading this app. And as I say, I'm, I'm actually trialing it at the moment for something else that I have in a separate business account that we do. Um, and it's called Counting Up. It's a Counting Up app, and it's free up to um, £750 a month uh, going through, and then you have to pay for it. At that point, you have to work out. I pay um, £7.50 a month for my business banking through Santander for my author account. Uh, this counting up account is free up to £750. And that's not, I'm going to be paying for that on my author account every month. Whereas with this other accounts, I've just done a rough, no, I'm going to be paying for the other account too, actually. Um, but I've got fewer transactions going. I've got loads of transactions going through my author account. And I, I'm not sure that I'd save money on it. I, I think £750 a month may be cheaper. But with this other account, I only have regular, I have about seven transactions going through every month, every month. So I won't be paying per transaction uh, and it might be cheaper for me at that point so I'm just trialing it on this other account but the the, the beauty of this is that it's it's, it's app based um, which is n number one but number two the bank account is is the software so I I reckon it's linked it's not two separate softwares 
I manage the money and I, and I could very quickly within the app just reconcile, match what each transaction is for. So if um, I could match it to utilities to, to, you know, just say what it is and then it will generate my end of year accounts. So I, I am in the market because I'm so busy. I ain't got time to sit there. I, I tend to reconcile them after about two months and I sit there all day. I'm going to do the reconciliation and it's a pain. Um, but I, I don't really have. I did have an accountant and was paying an accountant, but I found with the accountants, I was spending so much time doing the work over dollars. I can't believe that UK accountants can't cope with dollars. Um, but I was spending so much time having to do the, the PayPal stuff for them that um, I just thought I might as well be doing this myself. I, I am doing it myself and I'm paying somebody 100 quid a month to do it. So I'm very reluctantly at the moment doing my accounts using a, an app, but I would really like to cut the time out for that. So I'm trialing counting up for that a direct bank and accountancy system. I am in the market for something else, but at the moment I use QuickBooks Self-Employed. I get on very well with it. It generates my profit and loss accounts. It's very simple, very good, but uh, I, I'm, I'm looking for the next step of that now, a bank account that actually allows me to, to do my reconciliations within the bank account and then produce my business accounts at the end of the year. So I just recommend uh, those, just let you know about them, just to put them on your radar. If you're completely new and you haven't got a clue where to start. What I would say to you if you're in the UK is whatever you use for your accounts, make sure that it's making tax digital compatible, NTD, making tax digital. Now at the moment, making tax digital only applies to people who hit certain VAT thresholds. I'm not an accountant. Talk to your accountant about this. All right. You know how many things I get wrong in the average podcast or this is not financial advice, but on your radar for any online service that you use, check that they um, can link up that the software links up with the HMRC's making tax digital because this is going to become an obligation on us even as small sole traders I'm not quite sure what the deadline is it um, they keep postponing it they keep bumping it because small businesses aren't ready for it yet um, but they have started to introduce it for VAT registered businesses so it's coming and we're not going to be able to avoid it so basically you know I'm not going to advise you on making tax digital but I am going to say to you whatever accounting software you use now make sure that you check out making tax digital and that it's compatible with the HMRC software. That's the easiest thing I can say. For proper financial advice, speak to an accountant. I'm not an accountant. If you want to make your books available to people, then I would recommend use BookFunnel now, either free or paid. I pay for it at the moment. And actually, I think at the $20 a month service, it's probably worth paying for, to be honest with you. Prolific Works used to be good. Still don't like it at the time of recording this. I don't like the app. Um, there's a lot, a lot of what they do I don't really like. I think they're in the wilderness at the moment. And I haven't written them off completely. They're down but not out, to use a phrase. But I'm not. I used to love Prolific Works. They were all I would use, and they did a few things. I think they made a few missteps. Um, one of those was changing their name. I think they can still. It's very, very retrievable for Prolific Works. Um, but I, I'm going to recommend Book Funnel to you. For for one period of time if you've listened to this podcast for a length of time you'll know that i preferred prolific works over book funnel but then book funnel came back and they they innovated they do amazing things and now it's book funnel if you want to deliver books securely as a mobi file as a pdf if you want to give out free books for your uh, readers your advanced reader copies um you know beta readers the best way to manage that is through book funnel um, I recently stopped paying for it as kind of like a cost saving. I wish I hadn't done that. Frankly, I'm, I'm going to go back to paying for BookFunnel um, because I, I really like the way it allows me to deliver my books. It's GDPR friendly. If, if that's important to you, where you are, 
Um, so book funnel, get it free, maybe pay for it. Prolific works, certainly have it free, um, but maybe don't pay for that. And story origin, I really want to love story origin, but it's not quite there yet. I'm going to keep an eye on it because it's doing innovative things. It's trying to disrupt. It's trying to do different things, but not quite there yet. So when it comes to books, books pr promotions, managing your books securely, Book Funnel's the one for me. I produce the files in Vellum. I upload them to Book Funnel, and Book Funnel manages the email or direct download delivery of that. Keywords. It's important to know your keywords when you come to selling your books. So I think there's a few tools that we all agree on. The one that you've kind of got to have is Publisher Rocket. Now, they used to call it KDP Rocket. I'm assuming that they had some kind of issue with rights or something over that. Um, but uh, I don't know. But um, they've changed it to Publisher Rocket now, which is probably a more general uh, name for it, a better name for it. Publisher Rocket will allow you to, to do all sorts of kind of keyword research. I would say that it's the tool that you probably must have when you're listing books on Amazon to get your, your book keywords right. Something that I was very late to that I really liked instantly was Klytics. And I think you've got to have Klytics to work out which categories to put your book in. And in very simple terms, when you get Klytics, Klytics will tell you which categories are hot, where people are doing lots of searches, but where they don't have that many books in. And the point of that is that you can list your book in a relevant category, and it's easier to get your book high in the charts in a category that has high demand, but low supply. That's what Klytics does for you. And I, I used it, and I have used it, and I will be using it and reviewing it again before I do rapid release. And I was late to Klytics, and I wish I hadn't been. So you should look at Klytics when you're deciding where to list your book to make sure you get your categories right. Publisher Rocket is, is it free or paid? I can't remember. I think it's paid Publisher Rocket. It's a one-off payment. Um, I'm surprised they're not on a subscription model with Publisher Rocket. If I if I was them, another trick that I learned with software is never have one one fee for software because when you have a software, you have to maintain it and you have to deal with support. Always, 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 if you have a software, have a monthly recurring fee. That's the first lesson of software <laughs> that I learned um, because you might charge somebody $10 for it, but they're going to be coming back for support and advice and updates forever. So you need to make you need to have a way of making money on that, uh, which is a monthly recurring fee. So uh, they don't have that on Publisher Rocket at the moment. If I were Dave, I would do that. So if I were you, get in there where you could just pay one price for it. Klytics, I think um, you could uh, you should basically with Klytics get the latest report just before you list. But I will be getting the updated reports too because obviously that information changes and you have to move with the information. Another really useful uh, tool that's free. I can't remember who sent me this, but thank you. If you're that person, you'll recommend it. I can't remember who sent it to me. And it's it's just a nice little tool. It's a web link in actual fact that it's free. And it's publishingwithlove.com. And then it's Kindle KDP keyword search tools. I'm just going to put the link on the resources page for this. Um, but it's a really neat tool and it's free. And it's you might as well look at it if you're doing keyword research. But those are the tools that I'm using to get my keywords right. Here's another one for people in the UK. Just a quick one. If you want to have a virtual office address, I have a virtual office address. I do not want to publicize my home address. That's private. I don't want that to be any part of my business whatsoever. I don't want people on the internet to know where I live. That's private. So I use a service called ukpostbox.com. 
it's very cheap and I've used all sorts of things. I, I started using a UK uh, mailbox, a postbox. They cost quite a lot now. These cost about £100 when I started. They're about 200 250 now. Um, I now use a service called UK Postbox, which is free for the address. And then I put a £10 credit on it. And if and I never get mail because that's not my kind of business. I, I just work on emails. Uh, I don't use the phone really unless it's by appointment and under duress. Um, and I don't really get mail in my business, but I do need to have a mailing address. Um, so I use ukpostbox.com. It's free for my virtual mailing address. And I think, by the way, everybody could use this. I, I, I don't quote me on this, but I think you could use this wherever you are in the world because it has postboxes all over the world. But I have a virtual address in Manchester. If you sent a letter there, I've got £10 credit on my account. I never get letters. But if you sent me a letter there, they would um, charge me for it and they would redirect it to my home address. So I never miss my mail. Uh, but it allows me to have a virtual address for MailerLite and for business use. If you look at the bottom of all my websites, I have my virtual mailing address so that, you know, I, I'm legit. I've got a business address. Uh, but do check that out. It's very cheap. It's the cheapest thing I've found in that you don't pay for the office address. You only pay if you use the mail direction service, which is a fa fabulous deal. For my telephony, my business telephony, I do have a business phone number, but actually I don't publicize it anymore because as my business has evolved, I don't want you to phone me. There's no reason for you to phone me ever. So um, I do have a business phone number. If I had to give, I actually use it now. Um, if I book something online, I use it as an alternative phone number um, so that I don't have to give my home phone number away so I don't get spam calls. So I tend to use it for that nowadays. And then if I get a phone call from somebody I don't want, I just block it, which is brilliant. Uh, as you know, I don't like phones. So I use Invoco.net. There are many services. Just just look for call tracking services in Google. But the one I use, the one I use for years, the one that's had my business phone number for years is Invoco.net. And I, I used to put my business phone number on my website. I don't anymore. Uh, but when you rang that number, it would just go to a voicemail. That voicemail would get emailed to me. If it was a call that I needed to respond to, I would respond to it. If it was a spam call, I'd block you in the interface so you could never ring me again and waste my time. Um, so there's loads of block calls in there from time wasters. And it meant basically that I could find out if you rang me, I could triage you. And um, and if you it was if I needed to call you back because it was a legitimate business call, I'd be straight back on the blower to you. But if you were wasting my time, I'd block you. I'd never need to hear from you again. But to be honest with you, um, what I do mostly, if, if you if you and I agreed that I was going to talk to you on Skype, I mean, I use this for podcast recordings. This is how I record the audio. I would just dial you on Skype. We just dial on Skype. That's the easiest way to do it. And if it was for a podcast, I'd record it. Um, so I don't really use the phone. Not an awful lot of need to use the phone these days. But if I do, I would use Invoco.net. And it does allow you to have that business telephone number. Um, the business telephone number that I have, because I used to do a bit of local stuff, so I did need to use a, a number. Um, it allows you to get a phone number. This is in the UK. I can't vouch for it elsewhere. Use another service if you're elsewhere in the world. But it allows me to have a UK number with a Carlisle code on it. Um, that's, that's, so that's nice for when I was doing more corporate work. I don't really do a lot of that now. Um, so I don't really need the number. But it gave me a local phone number. Um, but that wasn't my home phone number that just diverted to a voicemail. You could also, if I wanted to, if, I, if I'd said to you, if I'd made an appointment with you and said, would you ring me on my business number at three o'clock? I could divert it to my mobile so I could pick it up wherever I was. So it just gives you all that permutations, all that flexibility um, with phoning, with business telephony. And it, you know, it costs virtually nothing as well. I mean, it costs peanuts. Um, for task management, interestingly, for somebody geeky, 
I still prefer to manage my diary. I do, I do have, um, I do use a Google Calendar. I use a Google Calendar for reminders particularly, but I still don't like working in an online calendar. I still haven't found a tool as, to manage my calendar that I like that's online. And that probably sounds very strange for somebody who loves his apps and things like that. So you'll be familiar with me in the podcast flicking through. I still can't beat a printed weekly planner. Because I want a working document that I can scribble on, that I can rub out, that I can colour code, that I can hold, that I can sit and read at the table when I'm having my shredded wheat in the morning. I prefer, for planning purposes, paper, pen and paper. Um, And to my left here too is my planning board, my quarterly planning board. And for planning, to be able to see that overview... And this is, this is the human in me, I think. This is my human requirements and the way my brain's wired. I still prefer a planning board and paper. But if you want to know some tools um, that you could use and that I have used and that I, I, I'm using with different collaborators, I like Trello. I have Trello boards. Um, Trello you could use for task management, but I use Trello as my ideas machine. I I use it to record my ideas. It's full of crazy, crazy creative ideas. And I just put them all in there. I call it my ideas machine. And I just put all my ideas in Trello. You can use Trello for task management too. I like Trello. I just don't have a purpose to use it. Most people will tell you that they use Slack. I use Slack with John and James as as our chosen communication tool for managing that collaboration. So um, I don't really like it. I have the no- notifications turned off. Uh, something that drives me spare, okay, and this is a productivity killer, is if you have your notifications turned on for Skype, for Slack, for Facebook, you will never get any work done. I have all my notifications turned off. You will never go bing, ding, wing, wong, whatever, you know, whatever. You'll, whatever you'll ever hear that on my computer. I don't have notifications turned on. Um, I don't want to, I don't want your notifications because they disturb me. They distract me. So, um, that's, so really, um, you kind of need to be looking at the notifications in Slack, but it would drive me spare, constant, constant, uh, interruptions. I don't like that, as you know. So, um, I use Slack with John and James, but I don't have the notifications on. I might just check it once a day to see if there's any messages for me while we're, while we're working on something. Um, the other thing that people use is Asana for task management. Again, I've used, I've looked at Asana. It's very nice. It's very widely used. I don't use it. Don't really have a use for it. Um, but there you go. <laughs> you know, uh, that's something that people use. Now I just have to remember the one that I do use. What's it called? I, I've got very, very close, very close to biting the bullet and paying for somebody to outsource my work, you know, to get a, what do they call it, a VA. Got very close with this podcast to getting a VA, and I systemized all of my tasks. And I'm trying to remember what I used. Let me just, oh, it's I put it in a Facebook group the other day. Yeah, it's in a Facebook group. I should have jotted this down. I'll tell you what, I'll put it on the resources. I can't remember what it's called. But uh, uh, it was the one that I liked best when I looked for it. And it was just a simple way of systemizing everything. I actually went through the whole process of systemizing everything so that a VA could go next, 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 next and just tick off the tasks every week for processing the podcast. So let me put that on the show notes and apologize that I didn't put that on my briefing notes beforehand. But I need to mention that to you uh, because I do like it. So go to the show notes for this episode to see what that mystery tool is. 
for live calls, for sort of live chats, video chats, I use Zoom and Skype. I think I've kind of mentioned those already. Backups are something really important. So I use Google Drive. I pay for Google Drive because I, I use it so heavily. I've got loads of stuff in Google Drive. But I use Drive. I use Google Drive essentially for documentation, for documents. I use it for spreadsheets. Excel spreadsheets are a nightmare. Um, I don't like Excel spreadsheets at all. I keep my personal home accounts and I have done for years in Google Drive. All my spreadsheets are in Google Drive. They just simplify. It's, it's why I love Google Drive. It's everything that Microsoft Word should be. And then it's simple and it just does all the tasks. You don't need Excel. Uh, an accountant might need Excel, but you and me as just regular people who need a spreadsheet but not a complicated one. Google Drive is just that. It's the same with the documents. We just need a few things in a document. We don't need all these horrendous things that that uh, Microsoft offers us. And, and that's why I like Google Drive. Uh, same with PowerPoint. It allows you to do PowerPoint. And I really like the forms uh, in Google Drive. I think they're not very well widely known. A lot, most people use SurveyMonkey, but I find Google Forms, which is free, every bit as good as SurveyMonkey. It's a really good system. So, um, so Google Drive, I love for backups. So I tend to keep my documents in Google Drive. I create them and save them in Google Drive. Um, I use Dropbox is where I back up my entire hard drive. So every file, every podcast episode is automatically synced on Dropbox. I have security on Dropbox. So I have Authy on Dropbox, as I mentioned to you earlier, because clearly I got a lot of stuff on there. But I love Dropbox. You know, I remember the old days when you get a brand new computer and you'd have to get, you know, back up all your files on CDs and then move all the CD content. It used to take forever. These days, You've got the, you've got, you're into Windows 10 or whatever it is in no time. You just set up Dropbox and then get on using the computer and your Dropbox brings all your files down in seconds. So I use Dropbox for that. I did try to make the transition to OneDrive. Much as I hate Microsoft Word, I do still pay for it every year. I have, I have the cloud version of it. And to be honest with you, the, the one terabit, whatever it is, um, backup that I get on that makes it worthwhile and I did try this year to get I thought I'm paying for Microsoft Word for 80 quid a year for it and and the family will have it too because I can have it on multiple devices um so and I kind of need it for editors and things like that so I, I do actually you I do pay for Microsoft Word much as I hate it and resent it um where was I going with that I forgot what I was saying with it oh yeah um and I try, I thought, right, if I'm paying for this, I can actually jettison Dropbox and use OneDrive as my, my one-stop syncing tool. But OneDrive didn't quite sync as neatly as Dropbox did. It's not quite as nice. So I haven't figured it out yet. So I had to, to pay for Dropbox again. But my aspiration is one, I'm going to sit down, work out how to sync OneDrive and, and put everything on my hard drive on OneDrive because frankly I don't really need to pay for Dropbox but but then Dropbox keeps innovating ahead of OneDrive and so it's very hard for me to break off Dropbox but for my backups my cloud backups I actually actually am using Drive, Dropbox and OneDrive at the moment so I use all of those for cloud backups so they're all secured with with Authy and, and codes and things like that but I also keep I have hard hard drives running I also back up to hard drives and I have used for years a downloadable software for that called GoodSync. Again, I'll put the link on the show notes for this. And what GoodSync allows me to do is to just click a little icon on my computer. I've automatically told GoodSync which of the drives, which of the folders on my computer I want to back up. 
and I still keep a belt and braces non-cloud backup on a hard drive. So, you know, if everything were to fail right now, it would be available in OneDrive, it would be available in the cloud on Dropbox, and everything I've ever produced, ever, this is since I started internet marketing, I've got how many hard drives? I've got one, two, I've got five hard drives to my right-hand side here. Uh, not all of them plugged in at once. But I've got every bit of content I ever produced in internet marketing. I could find all my own products, all my videos, everything, absolutely everything is on those hard drives, uh, backed up in, you know, in the old-fashioned way, as well as me having all the important stuff still backed up in the cloud. So it's really important to have a backup regime the minute i produce something anything it's backed up any, any folder document book file it's backed up automatically scrivener is backed up in the cloud everything is backed up in the cloud um don't ever you know lose a book or anything like that but all my scrivener files not only are they backed up on a hard drive they're also backed up in the cloud um you know and i can go back and version them all that all that sort of thing so get a good backups regime there's no excuse for it now in the old days when i was backing up it was really hard to do you used to back up on hard drives and um i i was very early into cloud backups and they used to slow down your computer terribly the the, the original ones um I, I didn't even use dropbox in the old days i can't remember the one i used to use but it used to slow down my computer terribly uh, and now they don't that slow down the computer they work beautifully in the background they sync with your phone and, the, and all the pictures you've taken so there's no excuse for not having a backup these days uh so i you know use either drive dropbox one drive i just happen to have a use for all of them so i use all three plus good sync for good old traditional hard drive backups for travel I'm very happy with a Chromebook. And this is part of the philosophy of me saying, you know, it has to be on the web. The only thing I can't use on a Chromebook that I've mentioned to you today is Scrivener. And if, so if I went traveling for six months, I'd probably have to ditch Scrivener and I'd move into Google Drive documents. That's what I would do. Um, frankly, it would be easier at that point. Um, but by choice, I like Scrivener. Um, so for travel, even over a laptop, I would use a Chromebook. I've just, with a Chromebook, they're, they're brilliant. Um, I've had a Chromebook for several years. The thing about a Chromebook is that you can't run software on them. That's the limitation with a Chromebook. So if it's not in the cloud, you can't really run it on a Chromebook. Um, but for travel, I love it. It's lightweight. It's fast. It, the minute you open it, it's logged on. There's no logging on and sitting there for hours like you have to with Windows. The, um, it rarely updates, but it does update. It just happens in the background. It doesn't sort of stop you using the computer. It's great for novice users because it doesn't keep coming up with messages saying, you know, the Russians are invading. This might be a virus, all that sort of stuff. It has none of that nonsense on it. This is a very simple, clean, fast computer. And Chromebooks have become better to use in recent years as more stuff is now available in the cloud. The sort of deal breaker with Chromebooks was that you couldn't use you couldn't use uh, softwares with it. You couldn't download softwares with it. Now, pretty well everything is in the cloud. You can. I've even managed. So I've been away on holiday. I've taken it with me, and I and I usually make a mess up with a podcast because I'm, I'm working at haste. So I've had to edit a podcast while I've been away. I, I've even found a software that I could use to, to to just do simple edits in the cloud using a little add-on app with Google Apps. So I, I've even got a software I could use to edit audio on there. So literally, Scrivener is the only thing I can't do on a Chromebook now. And I, I love the things. And I've just bought one for my mum. Now, with a Chromebook, they're really cheap. So I've just bought one for my mum. I've bought my mum the best one. So it's really light. 
It's beautiful and sleek. It's got a really high quality screen on it. It's got a webcam on it. It's got HDI cables. You know, it's the best, it's the best, um, sort of laptop version of a Chromebook and I, I can get. And it only costs 285 pounds. So it's still less than most laptops. Um, so I love Chromebooks and I think they're brilliant for travel. They're so fast and you know, so easy. Um, and, and, and the other thing, so the other deal breaker with a Chromebook is that you couldn't use Skype on it. That was the big deal breaker for me with a Chromebook. But now uh, you could use Skype on the web. They've got Skype for web. So you can now use Skype on a Chromebook. Now, I would have got my mum a Chromebook the last time I, I got a computer for her, but I had to get her a laptop because she uses Skype to talk to her brothers in Australia. And I couldn't use it on a Chromebook at that time. But now I could use Skype for web. My mum's on a Chromebook. And it's, it, it's the most simple computer on, in the world. She's got a Gmail button, a Google Chrome button, and a Skype button. She's got three buttons on her website, and I'm hoping she never needs to ask me a technical question ever again because Chromebooks are so simple. But again, you know, you know how geeky I am. You know how I like my tech. I also like Chromebooks because they're fast, simple. They do the job. They connect quickly. There's none of the nonsense that you get with, with other computers. So for me, it's a Chromebook. If I've got to travel. Final software. Blimey, this is a long one. I hope it's been useful for you. It might just be quick as a look at the resources page and get away from the chat. But hopefully the chat's sort of giving you reasoning uh, as to why I use these things. But if I need a MacBook simulation and you need to, um, Vellum is a software you can only use on a Mac. I hate Macs. Uh, I know a lot of people like them, but I hate the things with a passion. I won't buy anything. I won't buy any Apple products because I hate them. And this, uh, one of these days, I'll go into geeky reasons why I don't like apples. It's not, it's not, not just me being, you know, snooty about it or anything like that. It's very good technical geeky reasons why I don't like apples. Um, not just because I eat the things. Um, but sometimes I have to use them. Vellum is a beautiful software and it's so beautiful. It's worth me using that on a simulated Mac environment. So if you've got a piece of software that only works on a Mac, I use Mac in cloud. And what Mac in cloud does is it creates a virtual Mac on my PC. Um, so for something that I have to use on a Mac, and Vellum is an example of that, I then I use Mac in cloud. And basically, it makes my PC look like a Mac, and it allows me to use Vellum. And uh, I'm not going to go into this in any detail, but I, I use Dropbox on my Mac in cloud account so that when I save my files in Vellum, they automatically synchronize and appear on my main PC. I've got a video on that on my blog at paulteague.com. I'm not going to explain that to you now. Um, but Mac in cloud gives me a, a MacBook simulation if ever I need to have a MacBook simulation. And I use pay as you go. I can't remember what I pay. It's about $30 and it lasts me usually about a quarter of a year. Um, and I'm quite happy with that. I'd much rather do that than pay for a Mac or use a Mac. So um, there is a very long list of, uh, of the softwares that I'm using. And I, I kind of went through everything and I, I can't think of any other softwares that I'm using. And I really have covered absolutely everything in that list. I hope it's useful for you. I've put all the links on the resources page. So you might be listening to this a year after I recorded it. So if you are, you need to look for Paul's Podcast Diary, episode 168. Remember, some of those links, and I have marked the ones which are affiliate links. They are affiliate links. You don't pay anything extra if you buy those software services through my affiliate link. It just means that I get a little kickback, a little financial kickback. And it helps, obviously, to pay for my time and the expense of this producing this podcast so i'd be very grateful if you use the affiliate links it's a sort of way of um you know paying the bills basically for this podcast without any extra and additional expense to you uh, 
So there you go. That is my tech toolkit for indie authors. I hope that was very useful for you. I will have another Paul's podcast diary update for you next Saturday. Whatever you're doing in your indie author career, I hope you have a fantastic week of writing. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye for now. Thanks for listening to Paul's Podcast Diary. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed to hear next week's update and find out how many words get produced over the next seven days. Until then, we hope you have a great week of writing.